Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Auxiliary Podcast. Today's podcast episode, I'll be talking about the AOK of faith and what that entails. So, faith is interesting because one, it has a very interesting definition. The basic definition that you would get most of the time is a belief without evidence. And that's a little difficult to have as the definition of it. One, because there's different types of faith regarding different types of people. and. Most of the time when you talk about faith, it's related to religion, Christianity or Judaism or Islam, but it's also prominent sometimes, well, it actually is. It is actually present in sciences and the natural sciences and human sciences. And depending on where you stand on the belief of God, it will also change your definition of faith. So before we actually get into the problem of the definition of faith, it's important to point out three aspects of what faith entails. So let's talk about that first. And one of the first aspects of faith is known as the cognitive aspect. And the cognitive aspect really deals with our worldview. And the best way to actually explain what a worldview is, is a worldview is how you look at the universe around us and the place humans have in that universe. And most of the time when it comes to cognitive faith or the cognitive aspect of faith, it has a lot to do with the worldview. So when you make a claim based off faith, such as I believe that everyone will one day be in heaven, that's a little religious, but it's based off faith nonetheless, and you make that claim, everyone will, or you make that uh, statement, I believe everyone will one day reside in heaven with our Father. That one is based off faith, but it also has a lot to do with our worldview because we think that the world is divided into heaven and there's earth and then there's down below, there's all the bad people, and that's how we view the world. So in this case, the cognitive element of faith proves that it faith can change how we look at the world and how we perceive the world. But one problem that arises from the cognitive element of faith is evidence. When evidence contradicts what you may believe, for example, you may believe, if you've never seen the sun, you may believe that the sun is actually red. Right now, as of 2020, it's not exactly red. I wouldn't describe it as white, but I wouldn't really describe it as red, maybe kind of golden, yeah, golden, and that's what you would have as evidence. But when you talk about faith, the tricky part of faith is that sometimes when who are, or people who are really faithful don't care if evidence contradicts them, and they keep on believing what they believe. And that's, the, that's one of the main problems and main controversies of faith. It's that even if you have evidence to contradict what you may have faith in, if you have real faith, depending on some people, you'll continue to believe in it. Because faith, as I said before, is sometimes described as trust independent of evidence, which means it doesn't matter if evidence points towards something, or points against, or points away, or points sideways, or left or right, up and down, it doesn't matter. It will always be faithful, or you will be always faithful. And that's one of the parts of the cognitive element of faith. And that's also what makes faith, according to some people, noble, because the more evidence you have, but the more you still believe in something, then you have big faith. And the second aspect of faith, and the definition of faith, is the emotional elephant, uh, element, element, not elephant, excuse me, element. And the emotional element really has a lot to do with the idea of commitment to your belief. And that really expands on the idea of the cognitive element, where even if you have evidence to contradict what you may or may not believe in, you have an emotional commitment to what you believe, and you commit yourself to your belief. That's the emotional element of faith. 
And some people are actually really, or they're willing to go very far for their faith. I'm pretty sure we've all heard of the word martyrs. And martyrs usually have, or religious martyrs, they're usually willing to die to prove something or to believe in, because they believe in their faith. And that shows that some people have a really high emotional connection or they have a strong emotional commitment to their faith. And that's one of the aspects of faith in definition. And the third and final one is the ethical element. This has a lot to do with the definition itself and the, the nature of faith. So most of the time, faith, well, really 99% of the time, faith usually has to do with something positive. It's very rare that you have faith in something bad will happen, and that faith, regardless if it's usually good or, or faith in something good or bad, it usually gives you hope. And most of the faith that we have has to do with the future, so it would make sense that it gives us hope. And this ethical side of faith is very interesting because for one, this hope or this faith that is also hope can show up in two different shapes. One is trust and one is belief. And if you have faith in, say, a person that you care about or, or you believe cares about you, then that trust is going to show commitment to that person. And when you have belief of, or hope that is belief, which is in turn faith, it's a little tricky, but if you have belief, which is hope in a religion, then you can continue to be religious and continue to have faith in your religion. Now, one thing to point out is that faith is not exactly trust. Trust is a little different from faith because let's say you have faith in your parents. You have faith in your parents that they'll always be there and they'll always love you and they'll always make sure you're okay and look out for you. But that's a little different than trust. If you have faith in someone, that doesn't mean you generally trust them. You just think that they will do something, but you don't trust them to do that thing. Even though you kind of do, but you kind of don't. It's a very difficult concept to understand. But one thing that you need to take, if you're going to take away from my rambling, is that faith and trust are similar, but they're not exactly the same. However, after I've described and defined part of what faith is and what it isn't, it's now easy to understand how, even though faith claims to be um, independent of evidence, there are stances that would prove that faith is silly and it's not really rational. And this kind of thinking, where, where you think that evidence proves a claim, or any idea should have evidence to prove it, is known as evidentialism. And evidentialism is really the enemy of faith, because evidentialism, or evidentialists, think that you have to have faith to believe in something. And let's just say I have faith in my car. I'm driving to school, I'm driving to work, I'm driving. And I have faith in my car that it will not break today. And from an evidentialist's point of view, they might say, well, you did get a checkup, you checked your oil, or I don't know, you got your oil changed, and you made sure your car was okay, and it's not going to break down any minute now, and you made sure all of that was okay, so I think you have evidence to prove that. And that makes sense, because I have evidence, in their perspective, that I have evidence to prove that my car will not break down. But when it comes to more metaphysical claims, or met metaphysical faiths, such as religious faiths, or faith in, say, even a spouse, they would say you should have evidence to support it. Now, there is a little dispute here going on. There's usually three arguments against the evidentialist uh, stance. The first one is, what is evidence? What kind of evidence do you want? Because evidence can be out there, but we all, or 
If you listen to my natural sciences episode, you know this, but evidence is open to interpretation. And it doesn't really matter if the evidence points one way or if it points the opposite way or whatever direction it points. If a person can interpret an evidence a certain way, it doesn't matter what that evidence shows. If, for example, there's a volcano eruption tomorrow, and that after that volcano eruption, in some tropical island where nobody, nobody lives, so everyone's okay, but let's just say there was evidence to prove that there was smoke in the sky. And a scientist, let's just say, did not see the actual eruption. So he would say, oh, somebody had a bonfire and they got crazy and I guess there was a lot of smoke in the sky. Now, that claim is based off evidence and he interpreted the evidence, but he's dead wrong because it's not actually a bonfire that happened, it was a volcano eruption. So that's a great example to show that whether evidence exists and whether that evidence is valid or not does not automatically link to a good interpretation and truth. And the second problem with the existentialist stance is that there's the burden of proof. Who should provide the evidence and how much evidence should that evidence, or excuse me, how much evidence should there be? And the burden of proof really explores, let's just say I believe that dogs are amazing. I have faith that the dogs are the most superior animals to ever exist besides humans. Now, let's just say uh, I have a friend, uh, Bob. Bob decides to take an evidentialist stance and say, you need evidence to back that up. Now, does he bring the evidence to disprove my claim, or do I bring evidence to say that I'm correct? So that's what the burden of proof is. It, the burden of proof explores who should have the evidence, and how much they should have of that evidence. The third problem that evidentialism runs into, usually in societies, is it's not really practical and it really doesn't help because evidentialism is a pretty a stoic way to uh, living life. You want evidence, you get evidence, and then you believe in something. And that may work in, say, the natural sciences or the human sciences or even mathematics. Nobody likes mathematics, but it works in that way. However, when it comes to human interactions, you're not always going to be looking for evidence to prove, say, your friend is loyal to you and is a good friend. Let's just say I have a friend, Bob, and my friend, Bob, he, or I decide, hey, let's have, um, let's go out next week to the movies and, I don't know, go play and go to an arcade and play or something, or let's go play basketball. And he says, yeah, totally. And then the day of our, uh, when we plan to go out and have fun, he doesn't show up. And I think, well, what kind of friend is he? And I text him and I call him and he doesn't pick up, so I just spend the day alone. And in that case, my faith may fall. But that doesn't mean I'm going to constantly look for evidence to prove that he's not a good friend. I don't hunt him down and find out what's going on with him. I just think, well, he's probably just busy. I'll just spend the day alone, which is kind of sad, but I still do it. And the point of this example is that when you deal with people, or deal with people you trust, you're not going to be constantly looking for evidence, you're just going to believe in them. You can't always be looking for evidence because that makes the person that you're trying to find the evidence on, it makes them think that you don't trust them. And that creates a toxic relationship that is not really going to be good for either of you because you're just constantly looking to show that the other person is something they aren't or they don't appear as. So that's why evidentialism doesn't always work. It works great in other instances where, say, court or natural sciences, but it doesn't always work when it comes to where humans are, especially in relationships. And moving on past that, now we move on to the aspect of religious faith. So this is going to be good. 
Okay, religious faith is interesting because there are multiple stances on what religious faith is and how it can be interpreted and how it can be assessed and all that and why it may or may not be compatible with evidence or not. But there's mainly, or there's largely, three stances I'll talk about. The first one has to do with compatibilism. So compatibilism, which is compatible with ISM, ism on the back of it, it says that faith is rational, and faith is actually compatible with uh, science and natural sciences and all that. And this form of thinking usually has two theories with it. And the first theory that has, or that supports the idea and notion of compatibilism is known as the divine sense theory. And the divine sense theory states that every person has this sixth sense, and they're able to use that to uh, to figure out if they're in the presence of God or in the presence of some higher being. And that may be an interesting theory, which proves that you can objective, well not exactly objectively, but you can sense God actually physically in your mind. The problem with that is if we say that I have a divine sense theory, what's to stop me from saying I have an alien perception theory or I have a, uh, a Bigfoot finding sense? And the main problem here is that if you allow a person, say me, to say that I have a divine sense theory when there's not exactly evidence to prove that I have, say, an organ inside my head to find divine beings, then you can go on and on and on about I have this theory or, excuse me, I have this magical sense or I have an eighth sense which finds Bigfoot or I have this sense that finds the Yeti. Well, I guess Yeti and Bigfoot are kind of the same, but nonetheless, it goes on and on and you can't really stop people from making these somewhat crazy claims. And the second theory that is used usually as an argument for compatibilism is known as the rational faith theory. The rational faith theory states that what is grasped by, say, faith can actually be supported by evidence and reason. Now, that, what I just said is very interesting because if what is grasped by faith can be supported by reason and evidence, why is there a need for faith? Why have faith at all if there's already evidence? Because most of the time, when you have evidence, it's easier to believe in evidence than it is faith. That's why, as I said at the beginning, or part of the beginning, when people believe in something without evidence, it's considered noble. But because usually it's considered noble because it's hard to do so. But when it comes to believing something, if you already have evidence, why, why have faith at all? Because you don't really need to, it's just easy to look at the evidence. So that's why the rational faith theory kind of goes out the window. It doesn't make a lot of sense to have evidence and faith when you could just have evidence, or you could just have faith. The compatibilism uh, notion is not really making sense because both faith and evidence are somewhat opposed to each other, regardless of the definition that you give it. However, there are people out there who do believe in something called fetism. And fetism is this idea that states faith is superior and better than reason, and it, sh it will always be better than reason. And the problem with this kind of thinking is that it, fetism is just too conclusive. It doesn't make a lot of sense because if you can base anything off faith, you will base anything off faith. Most of the time when you 
leave an open door such as you can do something, most people will do it. And there will, pe there will be people who do things even if the people around them think it's not really a good idea or it shouldn't be done. If the option is left open to be done, most likely people are going to do it. And if you allow faith to be powerful or superior than reason, people are going to probably take advantage of that and make all these outrageous claims such as elephants will fly tomorrow because my faith tells me that. And it might be possible, but I don't think elephants are going to be in the sky anytime soon. And the real major problem, besides this one that I just talked about, is that Fetism says you should always have faith. But faith in exactly what? Fetism supports religious faith and really all types of faith, but when it comes to religious faith, the main problem is there's more than one religion and there's more than one God. There's Jesus, there's Yahweh, there's Allah, there's different types of gods. And Fetism does not uh, specifically point toward which god and which religion that should be listened to and you should have faith in. So that's the main problem because even though it does support faith, when you say, oh, oh faith is amazing and it's superior to all reason, the problem is, well, f which one do I follow because there is no lot out there? And that's the main problem out there with fetism. And from all these types of thinking on religious faith and all that, one good stance to take on faith and whether or not it is rational is to think that it is irrational. It is impossible to have reason and it is impossible to have faith in the same uh, domain. One, because they aren't in the same domain. Reason is based off evidence, whereas faith, as I explained, is independent from evidence. So that means it's not going to exactly be in the same same uh, sphere as reason. And that would make sense because when you talk about reason, there's the scientific method in which you go through step by step. But when you talk about faith, you usually, well, in religious texts and usually in Christianity and the Bible, you encounter a miracle and then that might serve as some kind of evidence, but you have faith. Or some people just have faith to begin with in God or whatever divine deity they might worship. And most of the time, the intellectual conflicts of the world between faith and reason only occur when reason or faith go into each other's domain. And one example of this is when science goes into the realm of faith. And when that happens, something known as scientism arises. And scientism is the belief that knowledge um, or natural sciences and the scientific method is the ultimate way to finding truth in the world. However, there is no evidence to support that the scientific method is the most superior method of finding truth. There's evidence to support that it's very efficient, but what truth? Because you can't use the scientific method to find the truth or the meaning of life. There's never been a successful attempt at that. Whereas faith is very capable of doing that because it's a little more loose compared to reason. But when, or on the opposite example of this, of scientism would be when faith goes into religion, uh, excuse me, not religion, when faith goes into the natural sciences. And this is known as superstition, where you make these claims of science based on uh, faith, and that leads to, say, you think about ghosts or you think about vampires, and that's when the real trouble arises. So as these two examples show, it's really when the two domains start to move out of their domains when the real trouble begins. Moving past all of this jumbo, uh, mumbo jumbo about religious faith, I think I'll talk about more religious faith even though I just talked a great deal about it. And even though I'm going to talk about religious faith again, it, this topic that I'm going to talk about has a lot to do with evidence and faith. And I talked about that a little before, but this has 
more expanded dialogue about it. So when we talk about evidence, I said there's an importance to have interpretations of evidence. If your interpretation is not good, as my example with the volcano, you'll usually not get to the truth. And this happens a lot in faith as well as in natural sciences. So before we get into too much about interpretations of faith and religion and science and all that, I think I'll point out five criteria for a good interpretation. So usually the five attributes of a good interpretation are they have an advantage to all the other interpretations that come from the same piece of evidence, they have factual adequacy, and they also have internal consistency, and they have a fruitfulness to them, they are very uh, beneficial intellectually, and finally they are simple. And these all have a lot to do with the way we interpret the world, because starting off the first one, which is an advantage, compared to all the other theories or interpretations that might come from a single piece of evidence, the one that is most good, that has the advantage to it, or that has the most edge to it, is going to be accepted because usually it's either the most understandable, it's the most accurate interpretation because it mixes in all the evidence. And the second one, which is factual adequacy, means that it is consistent with what you already know. Or let's just say for the sake of the argument, I have in a stove and the fire on the stove goes on, or it goes off, it turns off, whatever you say, but it just doesn't turn on anymore. And usually you would say, well, I must I must be out of gas, or if you're not using a gas stove, maybe your power's out or something. That would make sense because according to last, or not last, according to previous occasions where the stove may not have turned on, it might have been that the gas or the electricity was off. That would make sense. So that has to do with factual adequacy. Internal consistency means that inside your interpretation, it can't be a wiggly line. It has to be all straight, and it all has to make sense. The third one, which is theoretical fruitfulness, or it has to be beneficial to what you're thinking, it has to bring something to the table. It can't just be uh, a repetition of what another person might have said because that's redundancy. It has to be new, it has to be fresh, and it has to be uh, intellectually in enlightening. And finally, simplicity. You can't have a complex interpretation because then you're not going to be able to understand it. But that doesn't mean it has to be extremely simple, as in it's only four words then that's not really an interpretation, that's just really an observation, or really, it might not even be an observation. So that's a little hard to judge, and that's one problem of these uh, criteria, these five criteria, is that when it comes to having good interpretations, who's going to judge all these, uh, these criteria? And the main answer is nobody can, even though you can decide good ideas of what good criterias or good standards for the criterias of a good interpretation are, that doesn't basically or that doesn't necessarily mean that your judging skills are good. Largely because you're going to probably run into some discord along the way of making an interpretation and revealing it to whoever you are talking with. And because all the all of these uh, stances of faith and evidence and not, some people have decided to take the stance of agnosticism, which, which says that they don't really know if God does or doesn't exist. And that's pretty much understandable because there's evidence to prove the idea that God does exist, and there's evidence to prove that God doesn't exist. So it's a little tricky. Well, I talked a lot about religious faith as well as some of the definitions of faith in this episode, and 
I don't want to talk too long because all of you are probably getting tired of me just droning on and on about stuff that you usually learn in college or maybe high school. So I think for this episode, I'll wrap it up. And the next episode, I will get into faith in society instead of religious faith. Because there are usually two types of faith. There's religious faith, and then there's faith outside of religion, which you'll actually figure, or you'll actually, maybe if you listened closely to what I was saying about people, you actually figure out that they're pretty close to home. But anyhow, I talked long enough, so I hope to see you next time in the Knowledge Pursuit Auxiliary Podcast. Questions, comments, you can leave them. I'll try to answer them, and I hope to see you next time. Bye!